I'm Chase, and you're listening to The Angry Millennial, and I don't know how I got here. I don't know why I'm in this room or what they just fed me, but you're listening to The Angry Millennial. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to The Angry Millennial Podcast with your host, Jose Rosado, and co-host, Stevie Chris, where we talk to creatives and entrepreneurs from all walks of life and passions about the creative lifestyle, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be sure to check out our site, theangrymillennialshow.com, and sign up for our newsletter to be eligible for prizes and giveaways, as well as stay up to date with new shows and upcoming guests. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, who doesn't love really well-designed photography clothing? Check out clickgearclothing.com, a lifestyle for urban photographers, all Angry Millennial listeners can use coupon code ANGRYPHOTO to receive 20% off any order. And the first three people who sign up for our newsletter after the show will get a free $25 gift card. Now, guys, be sure to also check them out on Instagram at ClickGearClothingLTD. What's going on, AM Nation? And welcome to the Angry Millennial Show, where we chat with creatives and entrepreneurs about the creative lifestyle, the good the bad, the ugly. Today, we have former Odesk CEO and now partner with Polaris Partners VC, Gary Swart. Gary, thanks for coming out today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, okay, you know what? Let's get this out of the way just to start. You're a strikingly good-looking guy in a suit who's held pretty corporate positions. So people are probably going to wonder why you're here on the show. So let me be the first to say, with your time at Odesk, when I met you at a, a Creative Live, um, you know you managed to help millions of creatives get steady freelance work, and that's that's pretty meaningful. So Gary, how do you how do you come across that you know that job? You know, talk us through, you know, what, what were your thoughts going in, um, and what were your feelings kind of after you you walked away and transitioned a bit? Well. Um well, thank you for the uh, the generous comments, by the way. But um, you know, Odesk wasn't obvious to me at first. I uh, I was given this opportunity, and uh, you know, to join the company. I didn't found it. I joined uh, some very smart co-founders who came up with this technology to help companies to hire, manage, and pay talent from around the world. And I'd love to say that I had the strategic vision and insight to 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 join. But really, it was lucky, you know. And once I joined, and I realized how impactful the business was, uh, that's what was so exciting about the business. I mean, it was just the ability to affect clients who were who wanted to get more work done, uh, better, cheaper, faster, and people to be able to work and have the freedom and flexibility and boundless opportunity from wherever they were in the world, and that. Um, that really became the most exciting thing about the business. You know, hundreds, if not thousands, of comments every day from clients and workers who were just ecstatic. So, um, you know, the the run was incredible. I was lucky to land at such a great company with such great people, mm-hmm. and walking away was really tough because I think you know you'll be hard pressed to find an opportunity that's as impactful as uh as odesk right i mean and you said it too it's i think the, the way you came into that company is something that uh especially nowadays with people knowing um the the struggles between founders have with with giving away that control and and bringing in a ceo and that kind of thing um and is managing that kind of new relationship dynamic um obviously many people think of uh, what happened like Apple and, and Steve Jobs in the 80s um, or even nowadays where the the transition from a startup to some more, a let's just say, mature company where maybe you go public and you have a board and, and you bring in more established executives like yourself. Um, so what was that like for you to to come in, like you said, on something that was already had some legs, already had... Um, you know, a working model to then say, okay, we're doing okay, but hopefully Gary can take us further. Um, so kind of what, what, what goes through your mind coming into that? It's almost like, uh, I guess the only sports analogy I can give is coming into uh, a baseball game as a relieving pitcher, you know, 
and and you see the situation isn't one that you got them into, but you're coming in to kind of either right the ship or or bring it into a new direction. Well, I think it's um, I you know I think that's a good um, a metaphor for the for the situation. You know, I like to think of it as jungle, dirt road, highway. <laughs> you know, in the early stages of a company, you're in the jungle, and what do you need? Well, you need machetes and people that uh, need to you know create a trail. And then once you have a trail and it starts to be traveled or well worn, you, then you need a jeep, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's just faster and works better. And ultimately, you get onto the super highway, and the jeep no longer works. Uh, you're better off with the Mercedes or Audi or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so I I think you're being generous um, saying that Odesk was, uh, if you think we were out of the jungle, I came in and, and we were very much in the jungle. The team was small. We were hacking vines. We need clarity as to where we were going and how we were going to get there. And I was excited uh, for that task. It wasn't like I was coming in as the suit uh, to get us on the highway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize, first of all, wh- where the company is, and second, who you are and what it is that you're good at and what you want to do. And, and you know, through this process, what I realized, you know, I had been in a company that was acquired by IBM. Well, that that's like the mega highway, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's the Autobahn. And what I realized in that process is that I'm just not a huge company guy. Mm-hmm. And I am probably better suited for jungle to dirt road and maybe getting it on the highway, but then it's probably time for me to leave. Right. And so I, it took me a lot of years of being in all these different um, situations and driving on all these roads, if you will, to figure out what kind of road I like to drive on. Yeah, you you mentioned something that that for a lot of people is is an important aspect to learn about yourself and you really can't do it un- until you've done it, you know, in a sense and say, okay, am I built more for the startup kind of scene um, where it's smaller companies, smaller teams, you have more direct um, feedback on your role and the things that you do. Um, or are you the type of person who really just loves to be working for some of the bigger names uh, in these conglomerate type companies that, I hate to say you're just a number, but in a sense, you don't get that as direct feedback. Well, I um, I really agree with that. I think it's important that people recognize uh, where they're going to thrive. You know, if you can pick something that you're really good at, uh, pick something that you like doing, and to the extent you can make money at it and there's a big market for it, that's great. And I always... Um, you know, having worked in all size companies at all different stages over time, I, I kind of figured out that there's four things that I think people go to work for. Uh, first and foremost, there's impact. People want to go somewhere where they can make a difference. They want to feel good about what they're doing. And it's even better if the company that they're working at can make an impact on the world or for greater good. Uh, so first and foremost, impact. Second is growth and development. People generally want to go somewhere where they're going to grow and develop. They want to be more valuable a year from now than they are today. Uh, They want to grow personally and professionally. And the third thing is good financial reward. Uh, People want to be paid fairly and hopefully have a shot at some wealth creation or upside uh, if possible. And then the fourth thing is balance. Um, you know, and essentially I define that as the opportunity to do whatever it is that keeps you busy outside of work, right? So, right, or maybe yeah. you may be traveling extensively. And the priority of those things, impact, growth and development, financial reward and balance are really up to each person individually. Like you may say, hey, I really don't care about financial reward. I don't want to be on a plane every week. I want right. to be able to have a short commute and I want to be home to... Uh, play with kids or or hike or bike or swim or whatever it is that you do outside of work. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important for people to recognize how they feel about each of these criteria, prioritize them, and then hopefully get themselves in a situation where they can check most of the boxes. Right, right. Yeah, because like you said, it's nothing's ever going to be uh, perfect. You know, um, every role and company has its its drawbacks. And you mentioned something that the balance, that the fourth one, that I think nowadays people are are really taking more into account. Um, you know, 
I know you're, you're a Gen Xer, I believe, and, and my parents are baby boomers. And um, and it's seeing their generation, you know, what, what they did, that they could work for maybe one or two companies their entire career. And, and realizing how that's completely shifted. And nowadays, it's just, it's just not the same. Um, and, and how I think people are starting to realize that, that balance is more important. Because before, it was pour yourself into your job and, and you get the promotions and you rise within the company and, and you carve out some family time in there when you can. Um, whereas now, where we have like more remote workers and more flex scheduling at, at even very corporate companies, um, that it's people are starting to realize like, hey, like the family aspect and and your life outside of work is 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 really more important, uh, or let's just say more heavily valued today than it was even you know a generation ago. Oh, I completely agree. I you know I spent a lot of time um, when I was running Odesk around the future of work and what's changing. And there's a, um, a professor at MIT who also has written a book, uh, I think it's called The Future of Work, Tom Malone. And he said it best. He said that his father had one job his entire career. Mm-hmm. Tom said he'll have seven jobs his entire career. And he said his millennial children will have seven jobs at one time. <laughs> yeah. And so the world of work is changing. And you're right. Millennials care more about balance. They actually care more about impact Mm -hmm. than they do financial reward. That's today. Now, that may change as they start to have families and kids and they may say, hey, you know what? I I actually... I need to make more money in order right. to support my family. But uh, but for now, um, the millennial generation cares more about impact um, and growth and development than they do financial reward. Yeah. So so tell me about that. As a, as a Gen Xer yourself, you know, what's been your view of of the millennial generation? Well, um, you know, I think the millennial generation, um, uh, as I mentioned, cares more about impact. I think that they um, they want to travel more. They would love an opportunity to be able to travel and work. Uh, they say they want to see the world. Uh, they're more entrepreneurial. Uh, they're more willing to take risks. And entrepreneurial doesn't necessarily mean that they go and start a company. Uh, they can go work for a big company and still be entrepreneurial. It's a mindset right. uh, as much as it is a I start companies. And I think the largest companies in the world, you didn't ask me this, but the largest companies in the world are recognizing that they're going to have to adapt right. to this new generation of worker. And you know, one such example is a very large uh, search company located in Mountain View. And uh, I was with one of their senior vice presidents at the Aspen Institute. And we were talking about the future of work. And uh, this particular company is very flexible uh, around uh, their workers recognizing that they have to keep them happy if they're going to keep them in the job longer than two years. Right, yeah. And they have this 70-20-10 work uh, work program where 70% of your job is focused on your core job responsibilities. 20% can be adjacencies. Mm -hmm. So you work in one group, but 20% of your time can be focused on another group that interests you. And 10% can be on whatever you want can be on your charity of choice or something that you're excited about outside of work. And so they are, in fact, recognizing that if they give millennials this flexibility, they're likely to be happy and stay longer and produce greater work in that 70% of the time they're focused on their core job. Right. No, and that's an interesting model. I mean, and and to hear that um, is, is something that... Uh, I've never heard, but at the same time, I, I think that is probably something that's going to be more regular. Um, that even at the last company I was at, it's a publicly traded company. It's, it's a rather large company. It's based out of Manhattan. And I worked remotely for the four years I was there. And everyone from the CEO to you know interns only came to the office two days a week. And then the rest of their time, they were working from, you know, from home. And, you know, we use things like Skype and Slack and email and, and actual, you know, conference calls to to keep in touch and everything like that. But, I mean, even then I, I thought to myself, wow, that's interesting that a company, while in the media kind of tech space, um, was kind of really open to that. 
and and it was it was interesting you know uh to go to that from being a full-time photographer so in a sense my the fact that i work from home and everything else didn't change all that much um but it was interesting to see that kind of shift where i knew what five ten years ago that wouldn't be the case it definitely wouldn't be the case. I'll tell you a quick story. I was, um, my company was acquired by IBM. Uh, it was called Rational Software. And we had, uh, I, I ran a very large sales team at that company, about 150 people. And we were located in four cities. We were in Boulder, Colorado, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, Lexington, Massachusetts, and Cupertino, California. And we had a very good rep in the Boston office. So she was in Lexington, Mass., and she was a single mom and she wanted to move to Rochester to be closer to, uh, to be closer to her parents because she had two kids and she just needed more help with her kids. Right. And she was one of our best reps out of 150 reps. She was top, top, like I'm going to say at least top 10%, probably top 5%. And I was the director of this whole group and her manager came to me and said, listen, we really want to keep Diane, uh, but she's going to need to move closer to her parents. It's the only solution. And I went to the vice president of the company who I reported to and he said, no way. He said, once we open that door a crack, it's going to be wide open. And I remember struggling with it at the time, but it, that's just the way it was. It was right. like we didn't trust. We didn't have the systems in place. Right. He thought once we opened that door a crack, everybody would want to do it and there would go the quality and our ability to execute. And today that's laughable. Like, and I remember Diane you know, had a couple of cocktails at the sales meeting and told she, uh, she came to me and she says, Hey, F you and the horse you rode in on that. <laughs> I'm going to have to quit my job. And, you know, like she blamed right. me and right. I look back now and I, I felt horrible about it at the time, but today that would be a, uh, that would be a sure. No problem. Yeah. Right. Like a company would be crazy not to keep an, uh, you know, top 5% employee who was producing well beyond quota, who was, you know, had, had the work ethic, didn't matter where she was sitting, she was going to be able to sell extremely well. So that, that was a dozen years ago. And, you know, today the world's become much more flexible, more on demand, more transparent, more remote. And I think we're just tip of the iceberg of where we're going, uh, in the world of work. Yeah. I mean, and you said it, it it's, I, I always, when I when I left and I, I got laid off in that company, when I was looking for work, I wanted to stay remote, and and I was getting a lot of pushback from from interviews and stuff like that, and and I would kind of have this canned response, and, and at that point, I knew I was pretty much not getting the job, <laughs> so I would kind of make it my point to impose as much education and information as possible. Um, so I'd say to them, listen, like you know. It, you think that, oh, because someone's away, you can't monitor them and you can't gauge how hard they're working or what they're doing throughout the day. Um, but you'd be surprised how you, much money you could be saving yourself and how much better off your employees would be. Because if you think about it, if I had an hour commute every day, that's two hours a day. I'm, I'm not working, but I could be working. Um, and especially in the beginning, you have this, this almost um, need as let's just say you're the first person through the wall, right? And you're the first one working remote. That's a lot of pressure on you to think, okay, I'm going to do my job and then some uh, working from home to make sure that they don't think that this was a mistake, that they think this is the right thing to do. And for a lot of people, unless the entire company's remote uh, full time, I mean, that feeling never goes away. You know, because you don't want to be ostracized and be the one person who no one really sees a lot and, and thinking that they're just, you know, not cutting it. Um, so I tell people all the time, like, think about all the space you'll save in your office. Think about, um, you know, the bills, you know, having less people there all the time, um, switching off days. Think about overall employee happiness then helps your, you know, their health benefits uh, for, for if you're paying for them to have, you know, health benefits and that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's crazy, you know, but again, like you said, the technology had to evolve to get to that point where it was even, um, you know, possible, but at the same time, it's as, you know, as much as it's, it's trending and becoming more of a, a viable option, it's still not as prevalent as we would think. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely something that I think should be the case because you said it, we're, we're, 
if you have a top performer and something happens and you want to accommodate, you want to be able to adapt and say, well, let's give it a month. If it works out great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but back then it just wasn't the case. Yeah. I, I, but you said something, um, valuable, which is the communication and collaboration. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm sitting in uh, my office here in Palo Alto, California, and there's a video uh, monitors on a lot of the walls and the little, you know, hundred dollar cameras. And that has replaced the Cisco telepresence system from a dozen years ago. That was, I don't know, 50, a hundred grand to put in. And now you can do it for less than a thousand bucks and we can communicate and collaborate as if we're in the same room. Right. I mean, it's just the technology has gotten so much better. And, you know, another thing I think it's important to note is that not all jobs have to be remote. Right. You know, companies can dip their toe in the water and say, hey, we're going to try it with this and see how it works and uh, and expand from there. But the number of telecommuters uh, has increased dramatically. It's more than doubled in the last uh, three years. And even Odesk, you know, we had 150 employees. We had about 450 full-time equivalent contractors. And to give our team the experience and empathy of working remotely, we had work from wherever Wednesdays. Mm, uh, nice. We, start, we started by saying work from home. But then we said, well, gee, we don't really care if you're home or we don't care where you are. Go to a right. coffee shop. Right. And even if you, even if productivity was a little bit less the fact that people didn't have to commute, they didn't right. have to, you know, they, they had to figure out how to be productive outside of the office. I think it gave us a better empathy and understanding of what remote workers go through. Mm -hmm. And then I think it enabled us to deliver a better service for our clients and workers around the world. So for us, it became cultural. And um, even if people went to the beach on Wednesdays and work from a you know, a, a cafe or whatever, it, we still thought it was valuable uh, for uh, for our culture. And, and you said it. I mean, if you're open to, like you said, doing a, almost like a, a mini case study, you know, um, and saying, hey, listen, let's let's just try it out for one day a week. And and you said it, the the, the amount of things you learn quickly, whether it's um, in the logistics of, of how to continue with the open communication and collaboration, um, or even just the psychological effects of being, oh, well, I'm home and I'm in the comfort of my home or I'm in a cafe and I'm able to run an errand and then still be online. You know, those kind of things that, that you, like you said, you wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, only helped Odesk get firmer in their culture and, and kind of, like you said, be able to help your primary customers better because you then say, hey, look, we... We know what you deal with. You know, we know what you go through uh, on a firsthand basis. You know, we're not just saying that. Um, so that's that's really interesting. And then speaking of case studies, I know there was one at the Harvard Business School about Odesk, right? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, HBS did a uh, case study on Odesk. I, I actually just learned that they did one on Upwork as well. So post-merger oh, wow. post merger of Odesk and Elance. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But the early case at Odesk was... It was really fascinating because it was basically a strategy case. And the question was whether we should expand into larger customers. We should expand uh, out into more categories. Think eBay going from Beanie Babies and Pez dispensers to Rolexes and then cars. <laughs> or if we should expand more globally. Right. So have more of a global presence. And, uh, you know, you could think of um, eBay there as well. Should they go uh, do Germany uh, themselves or buy Germany from a, a competitor if they, if they uh, are able to start there? So it was pretty uh, interesting case because usually you'd get a third of the students that said, oh, Odesh should go sell to enterprises. A third that would say you have to um, expand categories and add more verticals. And then a third of the students would say expand internationally. So it made for a great uh, discussion and, um, you know, uh, a lot of great arguments and, and advocacy for all three cases. And um, so it was fascinating to be able to go back and participate in that. And as a matter of fact, 
Uh, I just participated this week, yesterday, uh, remotely with uh, students at Dartmouth. So the, oh, there's a professor cool. there who's still teaching the case, and I, I still go back and participate in the Harvard case once a year. But the, a professor at Dartmouth is now teaching it and asked me if I would join. And I love participating because the students are just so smart. It's, you know, where were you five years ago when we were facing this, this strategic yeah. question, right? We could have used you then. Right, right, right. No, it's and that's interesting. And like you said, again, technology. I mean, come on. You 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 probably did it what, through like video conferencing or something like that? Yeah, I was in uh, via uh via Skype to yeah. the uh to the students Check in Hanover, New Hampshire. You know, yep. and, and you can be across the country in in, in uh Silicon Valley, I'm I'm assuming, and, and say, Hey, look, you know, let me let me impart some wisdom on you guys and answer questions and interact and and uh and be flexible in that sense, and that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. So tell me, what's your interaction with creatives like now with your role at Polaris Partners? Well, um, you know, I'm an investor in uh, half a dozen companies and on the board of uh, companies. And so, you know, you have some minimal interaction helping those companies to operate. You know, it's a pretty significant shift from driving a car to learning how to be a passenger in the car and not right. grabbing the wheel, right? Or not telling them how to drive. Right. And so uh, I have minimal interaction there. I, I, uh, spend a, a lot of time uh, interacting with entrepreneurs who are pitching me their ideas. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, these are uh, creative entrepreneurs who uh, have come up with a, a better way of solving an old problem. And so you have some interaction uh, there. And outside of that, it's, you know, when you're not operating, you're more investing. I mean, my job now is to create um, value for the limited partners who trust us to make their capital grow. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different job uh, than running a company where you're more involved with um, the creative process every day. Right. It, it, I have to say that, you know, I, there's a lot I miss about running a company. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, back to my criteria earlier, the impact is covered because I can now make a difference in many companies as opposed to just one. Mm -hmm. The growth and development is huge. Why? Because I've never been an investor. I haven't worked at a venture capital firm. And so the learning curve is quite steep. I'm learning new skills. Uh, I'm learning how to be a great passenger in the car and not a driver, right? Right, right. The financial reward uh, could and should be great, assuming you do a great job like anything. And I think I like jobs like that. I was always... Um, you know, I was a sales rep earlier in my career and a, a bulk of my career I was in sales. And I love sales because you, you're you in charge of how well you do and how much right. money you make. You right. can you want to make more money, sell more, right? And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I think uh, venture capital is the same thing. And the balance of life uh, in this job is much better. Um, you still work hard, but you work hard on your terms, not uh, you're not the, at the whim of your customers or an investor or an employee. You know, it's lonely at the top running a company and everything rests on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, you know, in this job, you still have a lot of stress, but it's, it's not uh, the same as when you're the, the CEO of a, of a company. Yeah, I mean, you said it. I can only imagine um, what that's like and, and being at, like you said, lonely at the top where you're, you're seen as the person who's guiding the vision and the overall scope of the company and, and riding the ship when things go wrong. But at the same time, you know, when a company's that big, the, the channels and, and the amount of breakdowns within them that could, that could make that kind of uh, uh, change really difficult is, is jarring, you know. Um, so seeing how some people handle that is, is definitely interesting. Um, so backtracking a little bit, I, I see you've, you've actually went to the University of Maryland. So being a Jersey boy, and now you're a Californian, uh, how did you enjoy your experiences here in the, in the Crab State? <laughs> well, I uh, loved Maryland. You know, coming from New Jersey, I think it was the law that uh, some percentage of students had to go to Maryland. There were a lot of uh, <laughs> Jer Jerseyans at, at, in Terpland. But um, I loved growing up on the East Coast. There's a certain especially New Jersey. I mean, there's just something um, slick and even sleazy or street smarts about <laughs> growing up, you know, in the mean streets of Jersey. Um, and, you know, for when I first came out to the West Coast, I was like, hey, what's with all these, you know, 
futon sleeping, tofu eating people <laughs> out here. Like, you know, just a little bit of hustle could get you so far right. uh, in the land of those that were soft. And the problem is now that I've been on the West Coast for so long, I think I've softened. I've oh, lost yeah. a, lot of, a lot of my edge, you know. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you know, like the four-way stop would never work in New Jersey because it's like, yeah. well, I'll just go because I'm assuming you're going to stop. And here people are like, you go, you go, you go. And, yeah. And then, and now I find myself, and in the early days, I was like, oh, just go already. What are you yeah. doing? You know, oh, it's yeah. your turn, you know? Yeah. And, and so, um, I love the East coast. I think, um, you know, there's just so many great dimensions, you know, you drive from state to state and, you, you know, here you drive South and you're still in California. So yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, I don't get me wrong. I love living out here. I think I have the best of all worlds to be able to live in the San Francisco Bay area and visit New York and Boston and the fine state of Maryland, uh, often is, uh, is the best of all worlds. Yeah. I mean, and, and you, you mentioned the funny thing that I remember back in 08, I went to, LA because I thought maybe that would be where I wanted to move and it, I I never like I always consider myself like a very high functioning person but I never considered myself like an uptight tightly wound type person but when I went to LA I mean that's exactly like you said this is exactly what I felt like because I mean I would hang out with someone and they'd tell me oh, okay I'm gonna you know walk my dog and and then I'll come by and I'm like okay great and in my mind, that means, you know, what, maybe half an hour, you know, at the most, because they live nearby. And uh, four hours later, <laughs> I call them and go, so you coming or, oh, yeah, yeah, my, my roommate came by and we were just talking. Why? What's up? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess this is how they do things out here. Um, I was under the impression that this would be a much more expedited process if you're coming over. And and like you said, it was it was just the the the, the cultural difference. You know, I, I did some work with um, some people in, in San Francisco and I would tell them, oh, OK, well, you know, I, I sent you the contract. Let me know when you can get it back to me. And a week would go by and I'm pinging them again. Hey, just listen, just wanted to make sure we get that all, you know, all buttoned up before I come out there. Um, let me know how it goes. And and they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll have it soon. I'm like, ah, you know, I feel like you could just do it now. <laughs> and, and and they sim quite simply said, well, you know, we just do things a little bit slower over here. <laughs> yeah, it's a different animal, that L.A. area. It's funny. I was just there last week and I um, the Lyft drivers uh, are amazing. You know, I mean, they're super friendly and they're, you know, everybody's got a screenplay or a movie or right. <laughs> something. They're working, they're actors or, you yeah. know, I think there's uh, no shortage of drivers because, um, you know, a lot of them are in the, in that trade, the acting trade. Yeah. So, so how I know um, you did the, the Inc. Leadership Conference, right? And TechCrunch 50. I mean, how, how was that? I mean, those are a few of the things that most of us just read about online or, you know, watch on television or something like that. Um, so t tell us a bit about that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I've been to so many great events. I, you know, in the early days of Odesk, we were one of the, um, uh, in the early days of TechCrunch 50, we were the top 10 companies. And, you know, I get invited up on stage to present Odesk and people are swarming you afterwards. And it's really exciting. I mean, it's a little bit like... Um, you know, you have to be careful because it's fun, you know, especially if you're a bit of an extrovert and you like that stuff and presenting to thousands of people. And for me, it was, you know, I just really uh, enjoyed um, those events. And, you know, you're getting the accolades. I mean, not only were we at the Inc. Um, conference, but I was on the cover of Inc. magazine. Oh, and, wow. you know, that, that was just a really, I mean, you got to be careful, you know, you, yeah. you're, you know, your friends calling you from all over the world saying, hey, we see on the cover of the magazine here. And yeah. so it's just, you know, really exciting. And, I, you know, I think um, you have to be careful uh, that that doesn't go to your head. I just have right. a lot of admiration and respect for some of these guys who, you know, have that recognition and, and deal with it well. Um, but the events themselves are incredibly great for networking, for uh, just the PR value for your company. 
mm-hmm. right? right? To to yeah. to get that recognition. I mean, that's free branding, positioning, and messaging for for your company. And we would get thousands of customers from from these um, these media placements. So. Uh, the conferences are great. I think uh, they're great if you make the most out of them. If you go with the purpose of saying, I'm going to meet as many people, I'm going to promote my business. You know, for us, it was always about um, recognition for our company, right? Mm-hmm. Like recognition for me as a thought leader was really so we could uh, drive uh, more customers to our brand. Uh, you can always justify going to those events when you see the outcome afterwards. And, you know, there were so many thing, times where I get invited to something. It seems like it's a hassle to go. But every single event I can look back on and say, boy, if I didn't go to that, this wouldn't have happened. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you would have missed an opportunity. What's that saying? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Right. And so yeah. I think it's so important it's, to get out there. Yeah, of course. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. We, we chat a lot here about the the post recession evolving kind of corporate landscape you know where uh, everyone's a 1099 contractor to save on the bottom line and and, and it it seems like a lot of uh, companies are are just maybe uh, more on the defensive you know ever since the the recession and you know i always wondered cuz you mentioned like the millennials are are being uh, tagged as very entrepreneurial and that sort of thing, and and shifting jobs a lot. Uh, do you think? Do you think that's why? I mean, I know personally for me, um, you know, I always talk a lot about how entrepreneurism was kind of forced on me. You know, um, I always push back on those kind of broad judgments because if you ask me, I, I think we've essentially had no choice. If you look at like how the landscape was, um, you know. Think of sports things again. I mean, think of where if you were a ten to nine person, and and every company tells you that's the way they do it, and you you try and get hired full time and and be a really big role player. And don't get me wrong, your role can be great, but you're still a contractor in in the sense in the strictest sense of the word. But it's it's got to be tough, you know, to say, oh well, like you said, the impact you're going to have, and and I always think of it as. When people don't think it's that big a deal, I tell them, well, it's the same thing if you're a professional athlete and you get a one-year contract. You know, like you can't help but have that kind of weigh in on you a little bit and say, well, where's where's the the trust and the follow-up to say, hey, look, let's do a five-year deal or a seven-year deal um, and how that might affect your performance um, as opposed to being... As opposed to being a, a a single person just having a one year contract. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of the companies are driving it. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg. You could say, well, is it driven by the companies that are trying to save money, or is it driven by the people that want more flexibility? And it's not for everybody. There's certain people that will take a job or stay in a job that they don't like because they want the guaranteed paycheck. Right. And so we did a. Um, we did a study a couple of years ago at Odesk, and we went out and interviewed uh, our clients and our workers. And I was astonished to learn that 70% of the people we surveyed, and the, the end on this was thousands, so the sample size was uh, big enough to be significant. Right. Um, more than 70% of people said they're likely to quit their job in the next two years. Mm. Wow. So what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that these people aren't happy in their jobs. They're working at these companies and the company owns their soul, but they don't own their hearts and minds. So they're likely not getting their best work. These are people that have other aspirations. They're in jobs that they don't love. So, uh, you know, you could say, well, companies are smart because they want to save money. They're going to go 1099 workers. The government doesn't like this, by the way. They want to protect workers and they should, right? right? We, we want people to be paid fairly and economically, whether they're 1099 or W-2s. But part of it, I think, is driven by the people who want more freedom and flexibility. I'll give you one quick story. So at Odesk, uh, there was a woman, we would often have clients or contractors come in and talk to us about their experiences. And there was a woman from LA and she had a full-time job in LA. She had cancer, she got cancer mm. and uh, she wanted to keep working, but she couldn't because right. of uh, chemo and and the like and commute and, and, and. So she 
quit her job. Uh, fortunately, she was cured. She went back to her company and said, okay, I'm ready to come back to work. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't hire you back. So she's devastated. She can't find a job. She's been out of the workforce for two years. She starts working on Odesk. And she started at a low hourly rate. She was a writer. And she started with one or two clients. And I'm going to say less than 20 bucks an hour. I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's assume less than 20 bucks an hour. Right. And within a few months, she was making $45 an hour because her client said, wow, you're the real deal. We, we need to pay you more to keep you happy. Um, within six months, she had five clients on Odesk. They were five different clients. Yeah. So now her work was more varied and interesting because rather than working for one client all the time, writing the same kind of content, she's now working for five different clients on a weekly basis. And she could vary her content. You know, she, it's more exciting. It's more impact. Right. It's more growth. And her clients loved her. They all tried to hire her full-time. And she said, I'll never go back to full-time again. And the beauty of her situation was she said, I never have to sit on the 405 freeway in traffic ever again. <laughs> I can drop my kids off at school. I can go to yoga. I can work whenever I want. I'm making a better wage than I was before. Yes, I don't have benefits, but fortunately she was covered through her husband. And so for her, it's just it's greater freedom, greater flexibility, still good financial reward. It was everything that she wanted. And one of the most interesting things she said was, I'm not beholden to one person who can fire me on a whim. Like right. I can fire one of my five clients and get another client tomorrow because yeah. I'm that good and I'm qualified. I think the stressful part about that situation for a lot of people is the is when all of your eggs are in one basket, like the pro athlete. If, if I, if my knee, if I hurt my knee, I'm out of a contract. Yeah. And if the, the stressful part I think is in the gig economy is constantly looking for a gig. If you're constantly looking for a job, I think that's the stressful part, right? right? If you, if you have multiple clients and the work is good and you're, you know, you know, you're making an impact and all of your eggs aren't in that one basket. I think, um, I think that that's the good part, right? It's mm -hmm. looking for clients. It's wondering where is your next paycheck going to come from? That's a stressful part about the gig or the 1099 economy. Yeah. I mean, you said it, it's, it's something that, um, for me personally, it was the same thing where, where when I worked full time pretty much for this company, um, I had the frustrations of, okay, what, what can I do to continue here, but still make an impact and still be happy. So I started, you know, doing photography again, and then I started teaching photography. And I think at that point it, it there was that strain, right? Where they looked at it like, oh, he's not invested. When in re the reality was they were always my top priority. However, um, it was, I think it was a bit of, they didn't like the, 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 the turning the tables, if you will, where, oh, okay. If you're telling me I'm 1099 and I cannot be a W2 and I won't be considered for full time, that's fine. Well, then I'm going to be, start treating you like a 1099 <laughs> client, uh, and, and not a company I work for. And I, and it was really just, it was always my priority, but I just say, you know what? I want to be more happy outside of this. So I started teaching at night and let them know that, you know, I, I would some days I would have to cut out like, you know, half an hour early to go over to the school and teach. And they just and that was around that time, you know, it was it was the the part of the company where it was tough and they were doing layoffs and stuff. And it was just I kind of was like, OK, I could see that happening. Yeah, the most forward and innovative um forward thinking and innovative companies are going to recognize this, right? That's what we were talking about earlier. That's 70, 20, 10, uh, this situation would have been, uh, encouraged at some companies, right? Yeah. So, so speaking of that, tell me what was the biggest risk you've taken in your career? Oh my gosh. Well, there's been a, uh, a bunch. I mean, going to Odesk was super risky. Uh, you know, probably, um, my, my company, Rational Software, was acquired by IBM, mm -hmm. and I had a very cushy job at Big Blue. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, they really take care of people from a balance standpoint. I like right. to say that I had two important metrics, nine and five. 
Um, and even they weren't that important, right? But right. so there, there was very little impact and growth and development. I really wasn't thrilled after almost two years at IBM. And I walked away from a, from a, a big job and great salary and went to a little startup called IntelliBank. And that was just really risky. I didn't realize how risky until I'd been at IntelliBank for 90 days. And I realized that my benefits weren't as good. Uh, Travel-wise, you know, at IBM, you always fly business class and never rent less than a Volvo at Hertz, you know. I mean, right. you really get taken care of. And now it's at this startup and it was, you know, it wasn't quite ramen noodle, but <laughs> definitely wasn't flying business class. Right. And that was a really risky move. Now, in retrospect, it was, uh, it was absolutely necessary, right? I had to go uh, back to the jungle mm-hmm. from the superhighway uh, in order to get back to the highway. You know what I mean? Right, and right. I just learned so much. If I had stayed at Big Blue, I would have had a fine career, but it would have required me to change my aspirations instead of my environment, and I just wasn't comfortable doing that. And, you know, my biggest uh, um, sort of my biggest regret out of my career was I had an opportunity to leave uh, Rational Software early on. Uh, 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 the company I was working at, Pure Atria, was acquired by Rational. And Rational gave me a big job and national responsibility and a seat at the table, I like to say. Mm-hmm. And I passed on an opportunity at that point to join um, some Puratria employees uh, starting their other company. And they had this brilliant idea. They were, gonna, they were going to um, ship movies to people via the internet <laughs> in, in envelopes. And I thought, That's a, that is not a great idea. Yeah. And I passed because it was too risky. Right. I, I went for the safe bet. Right. And that was the opportunity to be employed number three at a little company called Netflix. (laughs) And it's the regret of my career. And when I had that same opportunity at IBM, I had a chance to leave. I said, hey, you know what? I don't want to be the guy that never stepped up to the plate. Right. Right. I didn't, I would have had a fine career at IBM and it could be great for some people, but I just didn't want to, I just wasn't ready to say this is it for me. Right. 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 Yeah, like you said, it it wouldn't have the same impact for you you know personally like you said to anyone else they could have been like hey i'm gonna i'm gonna just fly under the radar punch a clock and and collect a fat check for the next bunch of years and be happy um but it, from what you said i mean yeah it just that that wasn't you and and it wouldn't have made as much of a an impact on on your career and and your aspirations as a as a person um so you took you took a big jump that's pretty awesome and it was really risky, right? I mean, I went yeah. from the comfort of, uh, you know, IBM with great benefits and great salary and lots of perks. And, you know, I had young kids and here I am rolling the dice and, you know, making a lot less money. Now, granted, there was a lot more upside, right. um, but I had regretted not stepping up uh, to the plate earlier. And I think that was in the back of my mind. And so even though it was risky, it was, it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And in, I think it's important to point out that IntelliBank was not a uh, resounding success. As a matter of fact, you could say that we didn't have a great outcome at all, but that was such a character-building experience. I wouldn't have been eligible for the ODES job if I had not been through the IntelliBank experience of not making it. Right. right? So, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm even right now looking down at my desk and I see this, uh, this, uh, copy of fast company and it has the Uber, Uber CEO, um, Travis Kalanick. And, and I remember when I read it, it was the same thing where they talked about before he founded Uber, he had this flame out of a meltdown of another, uh, company he started. And, but the people always said the same thing. They said the, the ideas were there. It just didn't work out. But the way he was as a person, they knew that had he never had had that experience, it wouldn't have set him up to even come up with the idea of Uber. And, and that's something that we talk about a lot. You know, when we talk about, you know, the biggest regret, what's the biggest regret in your career, you know, for some people. And, and they'll, they'll say like, you know, I don't really have regrets because I know enough now to know that whatever happened, whether it was a, a mishap or, or a flame out or whatever, had I not done that, 
I would not be where I am now. Yeah, a good friend of mine um, put it best. He said, experience is what you get when you don't get all the other things you want. <laughs> and I got a lot of experience right. at IntelliBank, trust me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I think so, n- never squander a good opportunity to learn right, something. Right, right. So what would you say, you know, was would be your biggest fear in your career, like with regards to that? Oh, it's just the fear of failure. You know, it's that you, you make the wrong decision. And, you know, the one thing I learned at Odesk is we we were good. We made a lot of hard decisions. And I think that's what a, a good um, entrepreneur or CEO does is, you know, you, right or wrong, you take swings. Right. And some of them aren't going to work out, you know. So if you if you look at, you know, decision or action, no action, succeed, fail. Um, what bucket do you want to be in? Right. Well, the yeah. the bucket of succeed, no action. So you didn't do anything, but you got lucky and you succeeded anyway. You didn't learn anything. Right. So at the end of the day, you made a decision and succeed or fail, you learn something and it'll help you to make a better decision next time. So right. you, you're better off making more decisions, right or wrong, uh, learning from the mistakes and driving on as opposed to inaction, right? Just not making a decision and getting lucky or having things work out. Um, it's better off to actually take those chances. Um, learn as quickly as you can. I guess, you know, you'd rather burn out than fade away. Yeah. I mean, and, and you said it, it, it's, you know, again, you have this uh, moment in your career where you look back on and and you hear the word Netflix and you're like, Gary, whoa. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to remember, like you said, that no one thought it was going to work. I mean, Blockbuster had, had an op- opportunity to buy them and said, you're crazy. And look where they're at. You know? Um, so it's always funny kind of seeing those things, those moments where you see a company and you, you personally were in it. You know, you were in it in a sense of you had the opportunity to, to join that team and at that time, it just it just didn't look hopeful. Uh, and then you see where they're at today, and, and it's like, well, man, I really I really kicked myself in the ass there. But it, like you said, it, I think it was that inaction, like you had mentioned, that the next time you had a chance to take a risk, a real risk, you, you took it because, like you said, you you learned from that and said, I'm not doing that again. Yes. Unfortunately, that one didn't work out as well as Netflix, so I picked wrong. But, <laughs> but I picked, right. and and you know, back to my previous point, I picked. It it wasn't, uh, it wasn't successful. But at the end of the day, I, I'm so much better off now than if I had stayed at uh, at the big company where I wasn't well suited or happy uh, for the long run. So, um, it's a perfect example of actually take, taking a shot. And even though the first one didn't work out, the second one did. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So we're going to go real deep. Last one here. Uh, name your most meaningful moment in your career. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess I'm not really prepared for that one. You know, I think probably early on in my career, I was in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So actually making widgets, you know, precision metal products. I was living on the East Coast and, you know, it was my wife who said, hey, this is, you know, we should be in more forward, uh, a, a, a more forward looking industry, one that's up and to the right. And we should probably be in a more progressive place. And we both decided to launch um, job searches on the, the West Coast. And I reached out to my network and actually a friend of mine from college, a very good friend, his wife. Uh, saw something in me and said, hey, you should come work for our company. And it was a little tiny startup. There were about 30 people. I joined as a sales rep. And she really took a shot on me. Mm-hmm. And she said, hey, I'm going to give you a chance. Um, don't let me down. Right. Or maybe she didn't say don't let me down. I think she said make me proud. Right, right. And I didn't realize how competitive I was. But I said, you know what, I'm going to make her proud. And I stepped into this organization and was the top sales rep. And, you know, I, I got promoted multiple times. And, and that ultimately was, uh, the company was pure software. That was Reed Hastings, first company. Reed, who is also the, the founder and CEO of Netflix. And so I, I think the, the fact that I took this risk 
and got out of a cushy manufacturing job, which wasn't going to be a long-term success. It was good at the time. Tactically, it was great. You know, I owned a house in New Jersey. We had a beach house. Things were great. But I rolled the dice and packed everything up and moved to the West Coast. And it was a really risky move. And looking back, I think that was just so transformational. And it was really initiated by my wife saying, hey, I think we can do better. Right. right? It was that that you got to take some risks. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're the sum of your experiences. And I just am thrilled that I have had these different experiences, you know, like even a, a stint in manufacturing, a stint in sales at a very technical company, a stint at a big blue, um, you know, the ODesk responsibility. And now I kind of feel like I'm in the next phase of my a career and, and learning. And at the end of the day, workout or not, it's a phenomenal experience, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm motivated to make it work. So um, I think that helps. Yeah. And that's great. You mentioned something that, that quite, it honestly is, is great to hear because it's, it's unfortunate, but not a lot of people are lucky enough to have amazingly supportive partners who who will will say will say to you like listen while we're doing okay we're kind of just plateauing and and seeing that in you um as your wife maybe saw in you that you just really weren't as challenged and and on a daily basis as you would have liked or as she thought maybe your personality suited towards and and you guys both yeah you guys both took a big swing to completely uproot your whole lives and and move across the country and um and that I think is something that a lot of people can can relate to because it's unfortunate. I mean, when you have, like you said, when you have a significant other and kids and all that kind of stuff, it does complicate things. And sometimes that can have an adverse effect of, you know, what it because of that and because of what we have going on. That means that you should stay at this cushy job where even if you're not as challenged and that kind of stuff. We, we have bills and we have everything else. And, and, um, and that's, that's unfortunate, but again, it's, it's totally understandable. Yeah, I agree. I think that that goes a long way. Um, and you know, that was really risky Yeah, and just, uh, incredibly transformational for me to, you know, pack everything up and ship two cars, put everything else in storage and, you know, jump into something I had no idea about. You know, I mean, I was coming from a world of manufacturing and now all of a sudden I'm selling software. It was like, it just didn't even go together, but um, it, it worked out in the long run. Yeah. I mean, so listen, Gary, thank you for, for taking the time out. And, uh, and it was great getting to know you a bit more and, and about your career thus far and, and the very, like you said, the very big risk you've taken to completely change uh, industries at some points to in the, in the hopes of just learning something and building a career. Thanks, Jose. Hey, one quick question for you. Sure. So what's up with the title, Angry Millennial? What's your, uh, <laughs> yeah, how'd you come up with the title? So, and do you think millennials are angry? Uh, you know, honestly, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who I knew from high school and I haven't seen her in, in probably 12 years. And um, she lives in San Diego now. And she has said to me, she goes, you know, people always think that we're, we're this very jaded, cynical, angry generation. And she's like, when you really think about it, um, it's, it's kind of not surprising. And she, I'll, I'll try and cut it short, but she very succinctly said, we, we're a generation of failed, um, oh, how'd she put it? Uh, failed kind of foundations. So the first one for a lot of us, not me, but a lot of people, um, was that our parents growing up all of a sudden got divorced and divorce rates were very high. And now we're a generation of the children of divorce. And, you know, so we say, okay, that's the first foundation that, that kind of failed us. And then, you know, okay, we get older and we get told in high school, go to college. And when you go to college and you do well, you'll be able to get, do anything. Okay. Well, a lot of us did that. I mean, me, myself, I, I went to a four-year college. I did well um, after not really caring in high school. And then I went on to grad school and got my MBA in marketing and, and I graduated in 06 and 08. So they were both really tough times to find work. And, you know, it, it made me kind of feel a little, yeah, a little, a little jaded. Um, and then, 
you know, fast forward again uh, years later uh, where I was working for a, a good company making a decent salary as at 1099 and I just wanted to become part of the team and, and contribute more and grow and, and that sort of thing and ended up getting laid off. And at this point now, I'm, I was with a, a girlfriend and I had moved to a new state and we have two young kids together and it was, you know, I couldn't find work for seven months. Well, I think in retrospect, you know, if I'd made decisions on, uh, you know, I mentioned this earlier, things that you really like doing, mm -hmm. uh, number one, and then things that you're good at to the extent that you can get the intersection of that, right? Like I may like doing something, but I'm not very good at it. Well, that's right. not a good <laughs> recipe for success. But, you know, to the extent that you can find something that you really like to do and that you're good at, I think that passion take, takes you a long way, assuming there's a market for that thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um which not doesn't necessarily mean you know there could be a small market and people can be incredibly happy, uh, you know having the benefit of wisdom of all these years. There, there, um, I think that the millennial generation isn't afraid to follow their passion, and I think only good things can come of that. Right? Yeah. It's this ability to you know thrive at something you like doing. That's uh, that's really important in life. I think. Yeah, and I can say as as a Gen Xer, you've. You definitely uh, showed some very millennial tendencies <laughs> in your decisions over the years, so it's pretty pretty interesting. Good to know. <laughs> well, Gary, well, last but not least, where can uh, where can people kind of check out your work and learn more about uh, what you do? Oh, so let's see. So I'm a partner at uh, Polaris Partners, a venture capital firm located in Boston. Uh, probably the best way to follow me is on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary Sword on LinkedIn. I do some uh, writing there and blogging about some of the lessons uh, learned through uh, lots of mistakes made in my career. And uh, that's probably the best way to uh, connect and follow my work. Okay, great, great. And so we always end the show with this one last question. where We say, who's someone that you'd like to hear us talk to on the show? Well, you know, I've mentioned him a couple times today. You know, Reed Hastings is fascinating. Um, the CEO of Netflix, I had the opportunity to work with, uh, with him for a few years early in my career. Um, I think he's uh, a brilliant guy and somebody it'd be great to uh, to chat with if you can. Yeah, uh, we'll, be take, we'll be taking some swings. Awesome, Jose. Well, thanks for having me today. It was a real pleasure chatting with you and I look forward to connecting again soon. Definitely, Gary, definitely. Thank you again. Okay, cheers. Bye. Take care.